Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. What do we do when the science in the Bible seems wrong by today's standards, but typical for their world? For example, those who believe in a flat earth often point to scripture as evidence for their belief. Indeed, the Bible arguably does contain some texts that imply a flat earth. But if the Hebrew people believed in a flat earth, does that mean we should today? Should we posit an elaborate conspiracy that Google, SpaceX, and NASA are trying to hide the truth of a flat earth? In addition to tackling scientific inaccuracies, Will Barlow will also cover many scientific accuracies that point to divine inspiration in Scripture in today's episode 479, part 16 of our Scripture and Science class called Science in the Bible with Will Barlow. Well, welcome back to Scripture and Science. We're in session 16, and I've titled this Science in the Bible. And if you have made this far, this is the last session of the class. And I think it's important that we remember the words of our Lord in a situation like this, where those who endure to the end are the ones who are saved. Okay, so there you go. That's, that's my dad joke for the session 16. We got out of the way here at the beginning. So in this session which I've titled, again, Science in the Bible, we're going to look at, at three different things. Really, it's two things, then we'll conclude. So there are cases where the science, as represented in the Bible, we would say is wrong. So what do we do when the science is wrong? I put that in quotes for a reason. Or then, then the second one is cases when the science is right, or right according to our current view, or, or better, or whatever, than that should have been in an ancient framework. And so we're going to discuss those two issues. What do we do with science uh, versus that seem to discuss things about science in some detail in the Bible, both on the good side and on the bad side? And then we'll do an overview and, and conclude with some thoughts. So when we talk about cases when science is wrong, here are five examples. And really the first four are related. The first four are all aspects of what we would call ancient cosmology or at least some views of it. And I think there's pieces of all of these that are arguable on one level or another, and we'll talk about that briefly. But for the main purpose of the class, I'm going to assume that all of these things are wrong scientifically. That's the primary thing. And so the question is, if these things are wrong scientifically, how do we deal that, believing that the Bible is inspired, you know, scripture, things that we can trust our lives and our eternal lives with? And so that's the question we're going to be going, uh, going into. Uh, we'll start with the flat earth. Uh, now in this session, in prior sessions, we've been mostly staying in one spot. In this session, I am going to go through verses pretty rapidly. On the flat earth side, here come a couple of the verses that, that seem to indicate that people thought the earth was flat. In Isaiah 40, 22, it says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And the circle, people say, look, that's a two-dimensional object. It's a flat object. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So actually, the last part of that verse is really interesting because it seems to describe, at least at some point, a universe that's expanding, which seems to fit with modern science. 
but we have this issue of the circle of the earth that people point to with flat earth. Here is another example of a, a verse that makes us seem to think that a lot of the ancient Near East people uh, were flat earthers. It says in Daniel 4, uh, verses 10 and 11, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. So imagine a tree that is so tall that anyone on earth could see it. Now, if you have a globe earth, then that doesn't work. But if you have a flat earth, you could conceive of a tree tall enough where everyone on the earth could see it. So again, sort of a clue that maybe, maybe this is uh, talking about a flat earth. Could also be hyperbolic. That would sort of be my response to it, possibly. Here's another one. Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So again, the idea would be, how could the devil show him all the kingdoms of the world in one moment if it wasn't on a flat earth? Again, I would say this could be metaphorical. It's a vision. Maybe he's showing him quick slides of all the different parts of the world. It doesn't have to necessarily imply a flat earth. But anyway, that's what some people who believe in the flat earth will say. So what do we do if we decide that the ancient peoples, that the Hebrews and other ancient Near Eastern people thought that there was a flat earth? What do we do with that? Do we have to, if we believe and some people do believe that these three verses I just showed you show that the biblical cosmology was that of a flat earth. Just because the ancient Hebrews believed in a flat earth, if we assume they did, just because they believed in it, does that mean we should also believe in a flat earth? And I think the answer is no. Uh, just because they had a misconception and that's how God worked with them, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to have the same belief. Uh, here's another one that's related. Uh, ancient, a lot of ancient cosmologies had a dome over the earth. And here in Job 37, it describes this question by Elihu, sort of assumes a hard dome over the universe. And it says, can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? And here it describes the dome as a hard surface, as hard as cast metal, as a mirror. And so this must have been something that people believed during this time. Now, I think there is a larger question here, and I'm not going to really address it, whether every Hebrew believed this or whether every ancient Near Eastern person believed this. But it looks like Elihu did, based on what's written in Job. And so when we read verses like Psalm 19, verse 1, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And there are other verses listed here. What people will say is that their view of the heavens or of the sky would have included this large uh, solid dome. And again, I'm going to say, even if this is true, and I think to say that any population at any time having a completely monolithic view of something uh, is probably pretty rare, but even if we assume that everyone in, in the ancient Hebrew world believed that there was a dome over the earth, does that mean that we need to have a commitment to believing that there's a dome over the earth? No, we don't. Uh, we understand things about the atmosphere that, in a lot of cases, they didn't. But there are some things that they did understand about the atmosphere, which we'll get to, which are very surprising later in the session. These examples, I think, are interesting because there's a metaphorical nature, I think, to these passages. But if let, let's just put ourselves in the mindset of someone who's presenting this and saying that the ancient Hebrews believed that the earth was unmovable, okay, okay? 
So in 1 Chronicles 16.30, it says, Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Well, clearly this person had never heard about Newton's laws of gravity, right? I mean, that we're going around this sun and the moon's going around us all the time and we're always moving. So yeah, here's one example. Here's another example. Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. There's a couple of other references I think are interesting too. These verses, to me, reading them in modern times, I think this is probably metaphorical. This is probably talking about people's idea that the earth is going to always be here or that their lives are going to be preserved because of God or you know, the sovereignty of God, the power of God. I take this to be more figurative language than, than literal language. But putting ourselves, again, into this mindset that everyone believed that the, the literal physical earth was unmovable, if that's what they all believed, do we have to believe that too? No, we don't. We don't have to believe it. Uh, just because they understood the way they did does not mean we have to understand the exact same things in the exact same way. Uh, the last one in terms of flat earth or cosmology is the foundations of the earth. This is one of them in Psalm 104, 5. It says, he set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. So here again, we have sort of both of them here together, the third and fourth example together. You have some other examples in Job and Isaiah and Hebrews where it talks about the earth being on its foundations or the foundations of the earth. And look, there's many ways to interpret that in not thinking about literal foundations. Some of you may have seen like pictures or drawings of like a flat earth with a dome over it and like physical pillars holding the earth up. I'm not even saying that that is necessarily an accurate representation of what we're talking about here. But if it, even if it is, even if that is what they believed, and I'm, I'm not saying it is, but even if that is what they believed, do we have to believe that? No, we don't. And like I said, there's lots of other views on that. Go to town on the internet. You'll find all sorts of different views on that. But, but our, my point is simply, we don't have to agree with them. Now, here's something we looked at earlier uh, that John Walton pulled out, pointed out for us uh, early in the class. And I want to come back to it. Uh, the Bible often speaks of the heart and kidneys or heart and the intestines or heart and other parts of the Bible in ways that are not medically accurate. Uh, we often use the same metaphors. We talk about our heart in ways in modern times that don't describe physical pumping of blood throughout the body, which is what the heart actually does. We'll say stuff like, oh, I think you should follow your heart, right? Well, are you following this thing that's pumping blood in your chest? No. <laughs> so even we understand that some of the stuff could be figurative or, or metaphorical or whatever. And so even if we want to take it literally, that the Bible is expressing things literally meant to be taken as medically accurate, ancient people had particular views about these things, views about heads. You know, they didn't know what the brain was, but they had views about like heads. They had views of what the heart did, what kidneys and other parts of the body did. And that doesn't mean that we should believe those things the same way that they did. And I want to bring up this quote from John Walton, our friend from an earlier session, The Lost World of Genesis 1, because I think that the point is so powerful here. He says, Yet we must notice that when God wanted to talk to the Israelites about their intellect, emotions, and will, he did not revise their ideas of physiology and feel compelled to reveal the function of the brain. Instead, he adopted the language of the culture to communicate in terms they understood. That's from page 16 of The Lost World of Genesis 1. I think this is absolutely vital to our understanding of 
relating science that gets described in the Bible with the science as we understand it now in modern times is that they had a worldview and it's clear from several examples that are not nearly as controversial, for example, as flat earth is controversial today. In some circles, I'll say, not in scientific circles, but in some circles it's very controversial. If you're going to hold to a flat earth, then you also have to reject everything we know about the brain. You also have to, you know, where do you stop on all that, you know, that logic? You know, you can't stop. If you're going to hold to a flat earth, you have to keep going to all the ancient things that ancient people believed that God didn't correct. And John Walton, I think, rightly points out that God did not feel like he had to revise their scientific understanding. And he also gave a reason for that. And if you recall from what we talked about in an earlier session, he points out that God would not want to prefer one time science over another time science. Because we've talked about throughout the whole course of this class that science is fluid. It's changed over time. Our views of various things has changed over time. And so if God picks the science of 2022, modern science today, then first of all, it would have been unintelligible to the ancient audience, right? But second of all, and they wouldn't have even had the vocabulary to describe it, but, but that science is going to be wrong someday. Our science, some aspects of it are going to be wrong probably in the future. Some, and maybe the next couple of years, some maybe in 100 or 200 years if Jesus does not return. So why would God pick, if he's going to pick a timeline, a science to fit in a specific timeline, is he going to pick a future like ours, a future science? Or is he going to pick the science of the people right there who are the original audience? He's going to pick that original audience. That's what he's going to do. And that's what he did. And that's why this is true. So that's how I think we should handle cases when the science is wrong. We should understand, even if we, I think we have a limited understanding of what they believed anyway. But even assuming that our, our assumptions about these views are correct, and it leads to a wrong view of science, it's not a problem. It's not a problem because God communicated to them in ways that they would understand. And we know that many ancient cultures had a dome and had a flat earth and had a lot of these things. So they would have had the vocabulary for that. They would have had uh, the background for that. Now transitioning to cases when the science is right, uh, surprisingly accurate. Uh, what does that say about the Bible? And what I'm going to say is, that these examples that I'm going to give you are clear examples of the accuracy of the Bible and how we can trust the Bible. Because uh, we would expect the whole Bible, cover to cover, to have an ancient view of everything. And it turns out that in spots where it doesn't look like there was a really refined view, like a dome or a flat earth or something like that, where they didn't have a refined view and they had a vocabulary to understand, God could reveal to them some really surprising things. And that, to me, is the hallmark of the inspiration of Scripture, is that we can see some really remarkable things here in the text. And again, we're going to go through these pretty quickly. Uh, the first one is numbering the stars. In Genesis 22, it says in verse 17, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. You can also see Jeremiah 33 where a similar reference is made between the number of the stars in heaven and the amount of sand that's on the seashore. Now for us, a lot of us, we may read this and be like, oh, that sounds poetic and nice and lovely. Uh, but how surprised would you be to know that recent scientific estimates, and of course we can't observe either of these quantities directly, but re recent scientific estimates have the, the number of the stars in heaven and the amount of sand that's on the seashore as roughly approximately equal numbers. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And here we have 
Moses writing Genesis by Revelation using the same comparison. A comparison that until modern, recent modern times wasn't, wasn't possible to even contemplate scientifically. And when they did, it matched up with this. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. This one's interesting because I think we have to do some interpretational. There, there's a lot of debate over this passage. Job 26, 7 says, He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. And some people will tie this to like the unmovable earth kind of view. But when I think about hanging the earth on nothing, there's no strings holding the earth as it goes around the sun, <laughs> right? So could this be talking about gravity in a way that an ancient under person could have understood? Maybe. I don't think that that's necessarily what the text is trying to do. What I'm saying is this is consistent with gravity. This is consistent with our understanding of gravity. That's why I put a question mark at the top because it's, you know, it's, not, it's not the clearest example, but I like it. And this is, a, like I said, it's a controversial verse. People have a lot of different views on it. So that's as much as I'll push that one. But uh, anyway, think about that. Tell me what you think. Meteorology. There's a lot of stuff about meteorology that's really interesting in the Bible. Things that seem to be describing uh, aspects of our scientific understanding of atmospheric sciences that's all relatively recent in time frame. Here's one example. Job 28, 25, and 26 say, When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. So I'm going to focus in on this idea that the wind has weight because that's not something we would just automatically think of or just like posit in our own minds. Air, you know, as we move through air, it doesn't feel like anything. It's our normal sort of circumstance. So wind having weight is interesting. Uh, but molecules in air do have weight, and that is a recent scientific discovery. And so this is describing wind accurately, which is very, very interesting. Ecclesiastes 1.6 says, The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. On its circuits. Well, if you know much about like American geography and how weather patterns move through the country, weather patterns always move essentially the same direction. There's one governing air current called the jet stream. And if you watch how weather develops through the course of the United States, for example, you'll see that the wind has circuits, that it follows patterns. And this, these patterns exist all over the world. And so again, you have an ancient text describing modern meteorology. I mean, it's really, really remarkable. Uh, Psalm 135 verse 7 says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its, his storehouses. Now, again, this is sort of an anthropomorphic view of it. God is viewed as making clouds rise, making lightning go forth, the winds coming from storehouses. You know, I get that. But this also looks like it's describing the water cycle and li at least limited aspects of it. It's really cool to me to see all these things. Um, here's another example of the water cycle. Uh, Job 36, verses 27 and 29 says, For he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist in rain. That's a description of condensation, the process of where you take evaporated water and you turn it into rain. I mean, that's, that's what literally what happens scientifically. Which the skies pour down, that's condensation, and drop on mankind abundantly. So there's two distinct parts of the water cycle. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? So, you know, the person who wrote Job, they didn't understand everything about the water cycle. 
And the question at the end is a rhetorical question about understanding everything about the water cycle. But he still described two aspects of the water cycle here in the very passage. And again, this stuff wasn't common knowledge back in the ancient world. It's not like everyone understood all this. This is a remarkable way of, of phrasing it and wording it. Another really interesting example of this from a historical perspective brought to my attention by a friend of mine is ocean currents. Psalm 8.8 says, The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So I don't know if you've heard the name Matthew Fontaine Mari, but he essentially is considered the father of ocean currents, the father of oceanography, modern oceanography. And he started with this verse. <laughs> he didn't start with charting the oceans and then found this verse. He started with this verse and he said, by golly, if God said that there are paths of the seas, I'm going to find them. And he found them. And now this is accepted scientific fact that there are large paths of the seas. We call them currents, ocean currents. And we know that there are large and we know that they drive a lot of weather patterns and things like that. And it all began, our dis the discovery, the modern scientific discovery of ocean currents was started by a phrase in Psalm 8.8. Isn't that remarkable? The accuracy of some of the stuff that gets described, it's amazing. Human composition, Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Until, again, the last couple hundred years, it was not known that the same elements that you find in the Earth's crust, dust of the Earth, those are the same elements that we need to survive, that are composed parts of our bodies. Think about the vitamins and minerals you have to take in to stay healthy. Those things are in the dust. A lot of them are in the dust. A lot of them are in the food we eat, but a lot of them, the minerals, especially in the elements that we need to support our lives, come from the dust. So literally, science would say that our bodies compose of the same thing that the Earth's crust composed of. And here we have the earliest description of man matching up with that. There are a couple things in medicine that are absolutely fascinating. And before we get into this, I want to point out that there were well-known medical principles that Moses would have known from his time in Egypt. He was classically trained by the Egyptians. And I encourage you, we don't have the time to discuss all of it, the ins and outs of it, but you can find online ancient documents that describe, you know, translate from hieroglyphics, that describe various Egyptian methods of medical practice. And so if you get a cut, what are you supposed to do? If you start throwing up, what are you supposed to do? They had a whole medical manual filled out, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to summarize it for you in one one example, and this is probably not right, but you can Google it and fact check me. But essentially, if you got a, uh, a cut, you're supposed to put a poultice on it that included poop, okay? So now from modern scientific perspective, all you're doing is you're taking bacteria and you're rubbing it in an open wound. <laughs> so people were dying left and right, seeking out the doctors of Egypt because the medical manual was just not good, okay? <laughs> but then you get to what Moses puts down in, in Leviticus and he put, you know, in, in, the, in the Pentateuch. And it's, it's remarkable. And he had a medical background. I mean, he would have had that background in his mind. And despite that, he had the vocabulary and God could show him what to do. And it was so much better than rubbing poop into an open wound. Um, and I know, I know that this first example is going to be a trigger alert for some of us dealing with coronavirus, okay? But quarantine is in the Bible. In Leviticus 13, verse 46, 
It says, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is describing quarantine. This is remarkable that an ancient culture, an ancient society, one that would have been tempted to address this with a poultice or with something else, that God shows Moses, this is how you do it. You put them outside the camp. They get better. They can get inspected by the priest. They can come back in the camp. It's absolutely remarkable. There's also Numbers 12, 14, and 15, another example of quarantine. The Bible also describes hand-washing, quarantining after battle. I mean, look, you're coming into contact with foreign blood and substances and mucus and blah, 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 blah. So quarantining after battle seems like a great idea to me. Uh, refining metals with fire after battle to get, you know, you got blood and guts all over your sword. You better purify that puppy and get all those bacteria off of it. All these are good ideas from our perspective of, of modern medicine. All these things are good, and they're described all throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible. But you know what the most amazing example is for me? When God gave the covenant of circumcision, he instructed Abraham to circumcise the, the men, you know, of course, the men that were adults during the time of Abraham. They had to bite the bullet here, and anyway, that's another story for another day. But, but newborn boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, in modern times, we don't wait until the eighth day to circumcise. If you get circumcised, you can get a vitamin K shot, and then they'll perform the circumcision. Well, it turns out that on the eighth day, science has shown that vitamin K levels are at their highest level naturally. So why did God tell them to do it on the eighth day? Because vitamin K was at the highest level, and that helps with blood clotting and helping that circumcision wound heal. God told them to get circumcised on the eighth day because... Guess what? He knows a little bit more about the human body than we do, don't you think? <laughs> Circumcision on the eighth day. That was motivated by God's understanding of real science. It's fascinating. And it was commanded and done throughout the Old Testament. What do we say when the Bible is right about science in a surprising way? I think the answer is clear. I think it's a clear case. These are all clear cases, the examples that I gave of where the Bible being right about these surprising scientific facts should lead us to believe that we can trust the Bible elsewhere. Moses had a, a medical handbook from the Egyptians. He tossed it in the trash right where it belonged, and he listened to God. He listened to God, and God showed him some remarkable things, some things that are still true today in modern science, thousands and thousands of years later. So, I definitely believe that these examples of science, as described in the Bible, can be great positive evidence for the inspiration of scripture and it can be a great way for us to witness to outsiders showing them some of these things and helping them understand that look this is not an ancient book that doesn't speak to us today this is a book that still speaks that still has authority with that i'd like to give a brief overview of what we've seen in this class I began the class talking about worldviews, and I presented the thought that I believe we want to believe the worldview that explains the most evidence. Then we transitioned to different views on Genesis 1, and I think there are many ways to read Genesis 1, but the primary goal is to ask and answer the questions that the original readers would have had about the text. Uh, we transitioned after talking about Genesis 1 to reconciling scripture with the branches of modern science physics and astronomy, biology, chemistry, and evolution, geology, and its related sciences. And I'm going to say that there are many ways to reconcile scripture and each branch of science. 
There are many ways to do it. A lot of people have done it different ways. There are always new explanations, new papers, new books being written. And if you have enjoyed this discussion, if you've enjoyed this class, then I encourage you to keep up the work and to keep thinking about it because I think these are really interesting things. But at the end of the day, I think there are some conclusions we can draw. Uh, from my perspective, I believe the Big Bang points to a creator. I believe that fine-tuning in physics and astronomy points to a creator. I believe that the wonder around us in the natural world, the variety in the plant and the animal kingdoms, whether we think evolution is the right mechanism or not, points to a creator. Uh, then we transitioned to the subject of miracles, and we saw that miracles can be understood as God working within his laws in many cases. So, at the end of the day, I really do believe that science points to God's existence. I really do. <laughs> at the end of the day, I, that's where I end up. And so here we are ending this class, and we're ending this class in the same place we started it. We started by talking about how the two most important things when you're reaching out to someone who's outside the faith or who's left the faith, the two most important things is the gospel, kingdom and cross, and your personal testimony of what God has done in your life. You're always armed with those things. You're authorized to talk about those things and to really help people with those things. And I would love to add science, reconciling scripture and science together to your arsenal and having those conversations with outsiders. Because I really do think science points to God's existence. And when we think about a God existing or the Christian God of the Bible existing, those are two separate questions. And if you go look at other options, other religions, even if it's briefly, I, I will say there's no greater God than the God of the Bible there's no greater God than the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at all the other options out there, especially if you address other texts, ancient texts, using the same analysis that we've done in this class with the Bible, the Bible is so far head and shoulders above all the other ancient texts on these issues, it's unbelievable. And again, that speaks to the inspiration of Scripture and how we can believe that God could give through the Spirit to holy men these texts, this collection of texts, handed down and passed down generation for generation to us. So again, science does not have to be a barrier to the gospel message. It can supplement and it can support it. That brings this teaching to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 479, Science in the Bible, and leave your feedback there. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, this also concludes our entire class on Scripture and Science, and I hope you enjoyed it. Will Barlow has agreed to do one more follow-up discussion handling this episode, as well as making some comments on the class overall and some corrections that he'd like to clarify as people have written in and challenged him on certain things. As usual, these follow-ups are accessible on the Restitutio YouTube channel, so take a look at that. Thanks, Will, for your hard work on this material. Speaking of scripture and science, a couple of days ago I posted an interview with James Tour, the uh, famous chemist on the Restitutio site. Now Dr. Tour is a nanoscientist who is on a mission to expose false claims within the origin of life scientific community. 
In response to that video, Kevin wrote in saying, Excellent interview. I'm sure that there are other areas of expertise that need a complete overhaul in science. The same holds true in theology. At about the one-hour mark, he gives the biggest part of the solution, which is to reach the younger generation that has not already invested a lifelong career commitment and cannot go back. Thanks for writing in, Kevin. Good point there. And that's why we need whistleblowers, people like James Tour, people who have the credentials, who have the scientific know-how, and are willing to stand up and say, hey, uh, we haven't even built the component that is required to build one of the components of a living, simple cell. We are so far away from this using intelligent design to create life that it's not even within our lifetime or our children's lifetimes. And the press releases are grossly exaggerated. And so this is his message, and he's proclaiming it, and he's taking a lot of heat for it. But uh, just encourage those of you in the sciences not to be afraid to stand up for truth, whatever that truth happens to be, and to be willing to make some noise. On our last episode, I interviewed Tom Husty and received a number of comments on that. Jay wrote in, Great video. In my own move from Trinitarian to Biblical Unitarian, it was difficult to be called names and no longer considered a Christian by those I knew. But John 15:20 was a comforting verse. The names in being outcast should be expected. John 15:20 reads, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Thanks, Jay, for writing that. Someone else wrote in, My husband and I are about the same age as Tom and have also in the last few years come into the Unitarian understanding. It just shows you're never too old to come to the knowledge of the truth. May God truly bless your ministry going forward as you share this important message. Vaughn writes in, Every time I hear a testimony like this, it gives me so much hope and encouragement. I'm 10 years on a similar journey. I can testify that, yes, the cost is high, but the peace and joy that comes with clear biblical truth has given me the confidence and boldness to openly share the gospel message with others and also share with church members the true God and Jesus, his Messiah, and some people, through me speaking out, have come to the life-changing truth we have experienced. All glory to God. Thank you, Tom and Sean, for sharing. Last of all, Ken writes in, same here as earlier comments, at 67 years I have been on this same road for five years and faced the same rejection and the same amazing blessing and understanding and a personal relationship which produces surprises almost daily. I also use my work time to research by listening. Indeed, this is a lesson to those who only write stuff about this subject. Many don't have time to read but can listen while traveling or working. It's very encouraging to see all these new anti-Trinity discoveries and people popping up all over the world. Many of us have only ourselves to have fellowship with God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But with this medium, it brings us together pending the day when we all come before our Lord in unison. Well, if you haven't yet, go check out that interview with Tom Husty, who has just launched a brand new ministry and YouTube channel called Unitarian Anabaptist. He's got four videos up check them out. Well, that's about it for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can give at restitutio.org. 
I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.